This is week seven, week seven of the sermon series, Unashamed. And we take that from Romans chapter one, verse 16. When the Apostle Paul writes these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So this is part seven. Part seven is boldness and sharing. Boldness and sharing. What keeps us from being bold in our faith? Sometimes ourselves, our insecurities, our fear, our feeling that we're not quite capable. Maybe it's other people. Maybe we've had a run-in with someone in a church sometime who's just destroyed our ability to have the joy that God brings in salvation. Maybe it's someone that we tried to share with before that just totally rejected us. Maybe it's some of our behaviors and things that, of our past that we're afraid of. What will it take for us to get rid of that ashamedness, that fear, and be bold? What are some truths that can help us? That's what I'd like to share with you today. I'm going to start with a passage from Matthew, Matthew 28. 18 through 20, where we get the command. We call it the Great Commission. Jesus has come. He's lived his life. He's been crucified. He's rose again, and he's preparing to go on. This passage is actually found in all four Gospels in the book of Acts in one form or another. But we normally go to Matthew to see that. The Bible says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority, all authority, In heaven and earth has been given to me, Jesus. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Note some of these words, authority. The dictionary says this is the power or right to give orders, to make decisions, to enforce obedience. All that authority is given to Jesus. He asserts that power to command to us. He makes decisions for us. He enforces obedience. That's kind of sobering. A few weeks back, Bruce was preaching and shared out of Acts 9 that Jesus is Lord of the saved, but he's also Lord of the unsaved. He has all that authority. He is Lord. He is the authority. Where? The scripture says in heaven but also here on earth. Do you get that? Jesus has the authority over you. He has authority over me, over creation, over all. He has the authority when we're lacking courage, when we have fear, when we we don't know what to do. He says, go and make disciples. Literally, that means as you go. Stop with me a second. If you need to close your eyes, that you can help visualize your day. But for me, I get up in the dark, get in the shower, shave, get dressed, and get in that car. Jesus has authority over me in that car. How I drive? How I drive, Courtney? Not the best. Who I pass on the road? 5.45, 6 a.m. in the morning as I travel that 18, 19 miles. Then when I get out of my car walk through uh, a little area and get into my building. I pass some people. 
Monica and John and Rico and Susan, Marcus, Jack, Kenneth, Steve, Jared, John, Todd, Marcos, Courtney, David, Eric, Carlos, Tommy and Natalie. He has authority over the things that I see, the people that I come in contact with. That's pretty sobering. The words that I say to them, if I ever bring up anything good, anything about Christ, or if I'm in a bad mood, pretty sobering that Jesus has that authority. And as I go past about my day, I pass hundreds of people in all the buildings around where I work. And when I drive home and go usually stop by my dad's and visit with him, and I get home, I pass the homes of the Quintanas, the Taylors, the Deers, the Reynolds. I go to Smith's, talk to people, Albertsons, Costco. I come to Monterey, to many places through my day. Jesus has authority as I go by these people in these places. Jesus has authority. And he says to me, make disciples. Well, a disciple is a personal follower of Jesus. He says to baptize them, to teach them to obey everything, every one of his commands. His authority extends from today to eternity. Who are the people that you pass? Have you come to the grips that Jesus has authority over those relationships? Have you come to grips with the fact that he has authority and he's commanded you to share with them the good news? Even those that you pass by chance, he has authority or rule over every step you take. I want to introduce you today to a guy that was a co-worker of mine at Intel. He has a name, but in all respect to him, perhaps someday that he'll listen to this, I'm going to just refer to him as my co-worker. You won't find him in Scripture, you won't find, but you will find him in my path over several years while, when I worked at Intel. He was that type of person that didn't fit in well with my personality. You see, he was very sure of himself. Some would say he was cocky or arrogant. He knew everything. He was known for talking down to others, prideful, aggressive in communication, directive to everyone, whether it was someone that was subordinate to him, his peers, or his manager. He was directive. Assertiveness was not his problem. As for political correctness, well, he didn't know what that meant. In the world of celebration of diversity and acceptance of everything, including sin, he didn't get a good gold star. He lived in another city, but we worked together on the phone several times a week. I frequently had to travel to Arizona in the manufacturing plant where he lived. I sometimes find myself purposefully trying to avoid crossing his path. I couldn't travel that week. In all honesty, I just didn't like the guy. Over the years, I learned a lot about him. I knew about his family. He had three triplets, his personality, his religious view. You see, he happened to be a Mormon. I knew enough that I really didn't desire to get into a spiritual conversation with him. He had different views. I avoided it. For now, I'm going to leave that co-worker for a moment, but we'll come back to him. I just said that Jesus had authority and rule over everything, even my relationship with that person. He had given me a command to share Jesus with him, but I wasn't going to do it. I refused to talk to him about Jesus. I'll come back, as I said, a few moments later. But our passage is found in Acts chapter 4. We will read the first 22 verses today. 
So if you are using one of those red Bibles under the seat in front of you, you're going to find this passage on page 911, 9-11. As you look to that passage, let me give you the context that's going here. Jesus has gone, lived his life in the Gospels. He's been crucified. He's rose again. He's restored Peter when he said, feed my sheep three times. When he, uh, when he asked him, did he love him? The Holy Spirit has come, as promised. In Acts chapter 2, we've seen the establishment of the Christian church. All those people of Christ followers, we see that the church has five functions. To worship, to disciple, to fellowship, to minister, to evangelize. The church is growing. The apostles are teaching everything just like Jesus had taught. He had empowered them. This group of imperfect men, they were untrained. They're awkward. They always said the wrong things. They didn't really understand who he was and what he came to do. They fell asleep on him the night he was crucified. They scattered at his death. They really didn't believe that he could be resurrected, but he was. Now they're filled with the Holy Spirit. And in chapter 3, Peter and John just going about their normal day. Their normal day was to go to the temple. At this point in their lives, they were walking to the temple, climbing those steps. And in my mind, I can visualize when we lived in Israel, the Jerusalem golden, uh, uh, white stones of Jerusalem. Wes, they're just wonderful, huh? You picture that. They're coming up to the temple and they run into this beggar. He happens to be lame. We know what that was because I remember when we lived there, we'd go to the the old city and Trish would have, uh, Courtney was about eight years old, seven, and Savannah was three. And we'd walk up those steps, and there are beggars there today. I tell Trish, don't look them in the eye, or they'll get you. Ladies with children, babies. So I understand what it was like to go up, and there's a beggar. This man was lame. And Peter and John met up to this this man in the normal steps of their day. Look at us, Peter said. Silver and gold I don't have, but in the name of Jesus, get up and walk. Now, can you imagine that picture of this lame man? You've seen him. Get up, and he's walking, and he's praising, and shouting, and singing praises to God in the, in the temple courts. And all people had seen him. Hey, this is that guy that was lame. He was walking and praising God. Remember that Luke is the author of this book of Acts, and he's a medical doctor. You think he'd put that in there? If he hadn't seen evidence that a lame man could walk? What a great miracle. Peter and John then go on to share with them the basis of this miracle. They tell the people they need to repent. They need to turn to Jesus. They talk, talk to him about the foretelling of this Messiah in the Old Testament, their prophets. The sermon was unexpected, unexpectedly going on when some men stopped them unexpectedly. This interruption might make some que- answer, consider the question, what did G- sharing Jesus get them? Let's pick up this account in Acts chapter 4, 1 through 3. And as they, as they, I want to point out that word they because we often think of this as Peter speaking. But they implies that John was fully engaged in this sermon, this sharing of the faith. And as they were speaking to the people, the priest and the captain of the temple, the Sadducees came upon them, greatly annoyed. And they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. And they arrested them and put them into custody until the next day, for it was already evening. 
The first principle I'd like to share with you today in boldness in, in uh, sharing your faith is always expect opposition. Always expect opposition. Every time you have to share your faith, you're going to have opposition. Well, who is the opposition here? The captain of the temple guard? This guy likely ranks second in the priestly hierarchy. He assisted the high priest in the ceremonies. And this position was likely a stepping stone to become the high priest. He was the opposition. The Sadducees, one of the three main groups of the New Testament time, they were Jewish leaders, right along with the Essenes and the Pharisees we've heard. The Scripture says that these two opposition people, or groups, they were annoyed. Can you imagine that? When we share our faith, people are annoyed with us. It's true today. When you are doing what God's called you to do, there's going to be annoyance. There's going to be opposition. It could be within sharing your faith, in the church, external, whatever. There's going to be people who are annoyed with you. The annoyance was with Peter and John was expressed with three problems that they had. First, they had a social problem, didn't they? Remember, Peter and John had just miraculously seen this man healed by the power of the Holy Spirit. A lame beggar, now shouting and singing in the temple courts. They had performed a good deed. Powerful leaders do not like it when the attention is given to someone else. They had a social problem because the people were marveling at the action and the words of these two untrained men. Peter and John. Second problem they had was a political problem. The political leaders of that day knew that their power was granted by the Romans. If there was any uprising, any violence, any hint of struggle, the economic power, the control, the social hierarchy that they had could vanish in an instant. The whole idea of the resurrection from the dead directly points to some Old Testament teaching that Jesus was the Messiah. He was the coming king, the anointed one. The Sadducees were worried that the Romans would see this growing movement as a challenge to their rule. Their motto was, don't rock the boat. Peter and John were rocking the boat. The third problem they had was a theological problem. You see, the Sadducees were the group that was conservative in their thought. They went back probably a thousand years to the reign of Solomon. They rejected some oral traditions. They solely trusted in the Torah, the written law. As a result, any discussion about resurrection, immorality, spiritual concepts, demons, angels, anything like that, spiritual warfare, warfare they were innovations of others because they weren't conveyed in the law. They were convinced that there was no afterlife. And here, Peter just told him during the sermon the day before that Jesus had been raised from the dead. And the thought was that people who put their faith into Jesus Christ one day would be resurrected also. That was a theological problem. They were teaching something that was heresy to the Sadducees. There's opposition when you and I, when we try to share the gospel. The opposition for these two men put them in prison, put them in custody. Opposition is usually visible. Today, the opposition is usually visible. I'd like to point out one thing, though. The opposition not always is your adversary. Who is the adversary? Who is the adversary? If it's not the opposition, well, it's Satan, isn't it? When we start to share our faith, when we start to 
do things that God wants us to do as a church, the adversary, he gets annoyed. He gets angry. Sometimes he's not visible. He's invisible. But Satan merely uses others, the opposition, because he's the true adversary. You need to know your adversary, don't you? 1 Peter 5.8 tells us, Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Get that picture of the lion? You know, today in our time, there's only about 32,000 lions in the world today. In the 1940s, that, that number numbered 450,000 lions. In the first century, they were all over the place. Europe, Syria, Israel, Iraq, Pakistan, Iran, and India. Today, less than 10% that was just uh, 80 years ago here on earth. But what about these lions? Lions can swim. They can jump up to 36 feet. They eat 18 pounds of meat every day. Males can stretch out 10 feet long. They weigh up to 500 pounds. They can run up to 50 miles per hour for short term Short periods of time. That's why they get very close to their prey before attacking. Their roar can be heard five miles away. Many believe this was what Mark referred to when John the Baptist was the voice of one calling in in the wilderness. Powerful roar. They can see six times better than you and I in the dark. A lion's tongue can peel the skin of its prey from its flesh. Their jaws open one foot wide, which is larger than any human head. The lion's image represents majesty, awe, and leadership. He indeed is the ruler of the world today. Lion's claws are three inches long, about the length of a human finger. That lion can devour, can he? Well, Satan can devour us. The adversary has not changed. If I had time this morning, we could walk from Genesis all the way to Revelation and Scripture and see time after time there's good guys and there's bad guys. The adversary is present, and he's opposed to God throughout Scripture. He's opposed to God even today. But very quickly, let's look very quickly. Genesis 3, when he comes on the scene. You know the story. Adam and Eve. First uh, people, God, God created Adam, and then he took the rib and made Eve. That adversary is there. He appeared as that crafty ser- serpent. He asked Eve, did God really say... We can ask that today. Did God really say to go and tell others, make disciples? He told Eve that what God said is not true. Spoiler alert, anytime someone tells you that God's word is not true, they are serving the adversary. God's word is fully true. He said that God knows when you disobey him by eating the fruit, the forbidden fruit, that her eyes would be opened and she would be just like God, knowing good and evil, a partial truth isn't it? The adversary introduced the man to the words and feelings of being ashamed, of being fearful. The adversary is a deceiver. September 11, 2001. You know the story. You know what happened. The airplanes, they flew into those twin towers. Another plane flew into the Pentagon. A fourth plane was taken down by great people who adverted the adversary's plan to fly that plane, perhaps into the White House or Congress. Perhaps we will never know what the actual plan for that plane was, but we will never forget those words. Let's roll. What can we say about that tragic day? First, we know 
There's opposition. We know there's adversaries. We can also learn about the adversary to the United States in that time. You see, the adversary had studied and had found our weaknesses. They exploited them. No security to get into a plane. The vulnerability of the cabin door when you were in a plane. The disbelief that anything like this could happen in the good old USA. The adversary knew our weakness. I remember sitting in a seminary class in 1995. We were studying evangelism. One of my classmates referenced a fact that was astounding to me at the time. I didn't believe it. In that time, if you added together all the sums of the various Christian faiths, the annual money spent on missions, we just talked about the the Easter offering, $5,000 from our church is our goal. All that money to world missions, that sum was less than this. The Muslim contribution to a fund known as the Islamic Evangelization of North America. I point this out just for one reason. In every battle that was, in every battle to come, whether physical, physical warfare or spiritual battles, the adversary, he studied us. And he knows our capabilities, our vulnerabilities, and what it would take to destroy us. When sharing Jesus with others, know what sets off the adversary. He may arrange for you to be punished like Peter or John or Paul in prison. He may stir up conflict. We see that in the church. Whenever Jesus is magnified and God starts to move, what does Satan do? He introduces conflict. He will raise up the opposition. He will get you to stop sharing your faith. He will try to get you to believe that you have failed. Bruce shared with us a couple of weeks ago, we need to redefine our faith, what success means. It's being faithful. That's our job. The result of salvation, that's God's job. Albert Einstein said, you will never fail until you stop trying. You will never fail until you stop trying. I'm sure he was referring to some physics problem, but it's also true for sharing our faith. We will never fail until we stop trying. So what do you do? Daniel, I've asked Daniel to come up here and help me today to know how to stand against the adversary. The Apostle Paul gives us that answer in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18a. Come on up, my friend. You're looking pretty. Go ahead, let's put this on. As we read this scripture, you can't see it, but there's words here. We'll talk about them. The scripture says in Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, it says, Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Don't fight the adversary with your strength. You cannot defeat him. He's too powerful. But Jesus can defeat him because Jesus is all-powerful. Verse 11, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand up against the schemes of the devil. Sharing your faith, obedience to God, every pure thing that the church does is a spiritual battle. So we should not be surprised when conflict and opposition occurs. Now, I don't get over spiritual thinking. Everything bad in the world is a spiritual battle with me. I just don't do that. But the fact of the matter is, it's going on because verse 12 tells us, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. 
Sounds like an adversary. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you will be able to withstand the evil day and having done all to stand firm. Peter and John's problem was not the Sadducees or the captain of the guard. Their problem was Satan. Not even one lame man jumping and singing because he was healed, shut down the adversary. Peter and John's problem was that people were astounded by this and were running to find out about this Jesus Christ. Peter and John's problem was this thing called Christianity was spreading. Now there were about 5,000 Christians in Jerusalem. Verse 13 says, Therefore take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, having done all to stand firm. Stand therefore, having fastened the belt of truth. It says truth here. Put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as for shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith, with which you can extinguish the flaming darts of the evil one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit. So what do we do when the opposition comes? We don't have to fight the battle. Look at all these things. Salvation, the helmet of salvation. There is no other name by which one must be saved than Jesus. Jesus is the protector of our brain, the thing that controls all, all, our, all of who we are. Look at the belt, the truth, the belt of truth. The belt in, 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 in this time would hold up the tunic, would enable the person for battle. The truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, the life. No man comes to the Father except through me. The breastplate of righteousness, 2 Corinthians 2.21, tells us that Jesus is our righteousness. The shoes, the gospel of peace. Romans 10.15 says, how beautiful it is are the feet of those who bring good news. The shield of faith, it protected the whole soldier. It extinguishes those flaming arrows. In Romans 5.2, the scripture says, Through him we have also obtained access by faith. What that means is God's already allowed for us to have faith. What's important is not that we have faith. What's important is that we have faith in Jesus. Finally, I mentioned the helmet of salvation, but finally the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, Hebrews 4.12 says, For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the soul and the spirit, of joints, of marrow, of discerning the thoughts and intentions of heart. I always read this as a kid and thinking, Oh, i got to do this and i got to go fight the battle. Think about all these words. Jesus is the armor. It's the armor of God. We see this in Isaiah 59 as well in the Old Testament. All I need to do is surround myself with Jesus. I don't have to do fight the battle. Jesus fights the battle. I just have to be prepared. I have to stand firm. I don't have to run or hide. I just need to put Jesus on it. Verse 18, very critical. When you're in that spiritual battle, when Jesus doesn't want you to share your faith, pray. When conflict comes, when opposition comes, you don't go fight it. Pray. Put on the armor of God. Thank you, buddy. Thank you, buddy. Expect opposition. Expect opposition. The second point, let's look at that. I'm going to return to Acts chapter 4 and read about eight verses here. But many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. 
On the next day, their rulers and the elders and scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas, the high priest, and Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, all who were of the priestly, high priestly family. And when they had set them in the midst, they inquired, By what power or by what name did you do this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed done to a crippled man, by what means this man has been healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That next day, amen is right. The next day, the trial for Peter and John begins. And what happens when they ask about the authority? Peter takes another opportunity, doesn't he? And he, and he tells them about Jesus. He shares his faith again. So every moment, every moment, the day before and this day, every moment for Peter was an opportunity. Every moment was an opportunity. That's principle number two. In 2002, we took a long vacation. Um, I had a sabbatical from Intel, and that was the year we got to take our family to Thailand and some youth from Taylor Ranch on a mission trip. But before that, we went on a five-week trip. We started in uh, Albuquerque and went to Tulsa and got to Chicago. Um, Courtney was uh, about 12, and Savannah was about 7 or 8. And I remember we went to the All-American Doll Museum. And we were going to go there for a couple hours was my plan. And then we were going to take a little trip down to uh, see Wrigley Field. We ended up staying at that All-American Museum for two days is my recollection. <laughs> Guess what? We never got to Wrigley, Wrigley Field. But we did get to a McDonald's along the Michigan Mile, I think is what it's called. The high rises in, in, um, in Chicago. And we were going in. We were going to get some lunch at McDonald's. And we walked in, and this guy approached me. He's a pretty animated guy. He was talking to me. He's hungry. He needed some food. And I had that opportunity in that moment to make a decision what I was going to do. Was I going to get this guy some food? Or was I just going to not look in his eyes like I'd done in Jerusalem for many times? Well, it turns out my girls were here watching me, and they, they're pretty smart at this time. So I said, yeah, I'm going to buy you some food. And, and I remember we kind of told them, and I always try to do this. I don't always successful. I said, Jesus is going to allow me to buy food for you. So we walk into the McDonald's, and here's the manager coming over to this guy. He says, I told you not to come in here. And he said, I'm a paying customer. Tell him. He looked at me like that. He was excited. I said, yeah, we're going we're gonna to buy him some fries and a Big Mac. And he's a paying customer. And I remember uh, Trish and I were talking about it in the nursery this morning. We remember we prayed with a guy. It was an opportunity. It was an opportunity. That's principle number two. There's always an opportunity. January 25th this year, my friend Kyle Scartwood, he was inducted into the New Mexico Coaches Hall of Fame for cross-country and track. And uh, he got this war- word in about October, and he, he called me. He said, I got a quirky question for you. That's what he always says. I got a quirky question for you. And he asked me, and he, he said, would you, would you do the introduction? Well, I was a little cloudy on how this was, but what it ended up being was 
it ended up being that I had to speak about him. I had to introduce him, and he didn't even speak. It's not like an acceptance speech. I got to do that for him. And so as we kind of went back and forth over three or four months about what he would want to uh, want me to say, and we went back and forth, some things I thought of and stuff, but I, I knew Kyle. Kyle had taught me everything I know about coaching track and field. I, I used to run, and I still run. I run miles and stuff like that, but running doesn't help you when you're throwing a shot put or pole vaulting or jumping. So he taught me everything there was over that 10, 15 years, but he taught me something else. He taught me how to repent. He taught me how to strive each day to get better because we ran, especially in the fall, mile after mile after mile. And we talk about how God's Word's dealing with him. And mostly I listened because he liked to talk. I always, I can't talk when I'm running. But I, I learned so much from him. And he asked me, when he asked me to give that introduction speech, he gave me some things. One thing he wanted me to say, he wanted me to talk about Christ. He said, you're the pastor. You could be bold. Well, I was a little nervous. I got 10 minutes to talk. And so the day came and I had developed what I had wanted to uh, say. And I said, I, I want to introduce you to a guy named Kyle Scartwood. It's him right here. And I used the uh, acrostic of track, T-R-A-C-K, to describe him. I said, Kyle's all about the team. His assistant coaches, he's always pushing them. And, and, and when... Uh, when he needed to correct us, he'd say, my two cents are blah, 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 and walk away. He allowed his team of assistants to coach. That was who he was. The R represented the respect for the sport. The guy uh, respected the officials, the other teams. He prayed for the other teams every day before a meet. A was for the athletes, because he never ran, jumped, through, but he always, he always gave credit to the athletes. C, what was it for? It was for Christ. The K was for kudos because he was always thanking other people. Thank you for inviting us to your meet. Thank you for doing this. Thank you for that. In fact, there was a Coach of the Year awards. He would, he would get that, uh, that plaque that he would get for the District Coach of the Year, and he'd hand it to one of his assistants. You're my Coach of the Year. He was always giving kudos or thanks to everybody else. Well, that day, go to the next picture, I think. Is there, um, Logan? That day that I spoke... I, I didn't have one of his um, jerseys, but I had hoped to put on his jersey uh, when, I, when I introduced him, but I didn't have it. But I had a Hope Letterman's jacket. So I put on that Hope Letterman's jacket, and I went in and described those things. And I said, when I got to the C, I said, the C in Kyle's life is Christ. And I talked about just what that meant. I said, you love God and you love others. And I got up there. Here's the amazing thing was I was there to, to introduce uh, Kyle Scartwood, but who got magnified was Christ. It was an opportunity. It was an opportunity. Every high school coach from the state of New Mexico heard Jesus Christ talk about a man going in the Hall of Fame. I don't say that boastful or anything like that because I wanted to brought up see if he hadn't told me. But every moment's an opportunity. First Peter 3.15 says this, In your hearts honor Christ as Lord, but in your hearts honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. There will always be opposition, and every moment is an opportunity, but we've got to hurry. Let's look at principle three. Verse 13 of Acts 4.13 said, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John 
and they perceived that they were uneducated common men. They were astonished, and they recognized that they had been with Jesus. Principle number three, God uses ordinary people. The Scripture says that Peter and John were uneducated. They were common men, but they had been with Jesus. If you know Jesus, God can use you, the ordinary person you are, because you have been with Jesus. Now this is Peter. He's that boastful, arrogant one. Remember? He sunk in the sea when he took his eyes off Jesus. When Jesus said he would die and raise again, Peter rebuked Jesus and said, Never will that happen. Jesus said, Get behind me, Satan. He fell asleep that night when Jesus was arrested. He was absent at the cross. He is forever famous for denying Jesus three times. He's just an ordinary guy. Robert K. Story tells us about some other ordinary people. Abraham, a hundred years old when he began to allow God, when God began to use him. You may think that you've wasted a lot of time, but not as much as Abraham. Jacob, the chronic liar, he ran away from every difficult situation, but God used him. Leah, unattractive, ugly, some would say, but God used her. Joseph was abused. Gideon, poor, weak, afraid. Samson was recklessly codependent. Rahab, a prostitute, but she is listed in Hebrews 11 and in Jesus' lineage. Jonah, fearful and reluctant to obey God. Elijah, suicidal. Naomi, an elderly widow, but was used by God. Jeremiah, chronic in depression. David, an adulteress, a murderer, but a man after God's heart. John the Baptist, eccentric. Peter, impulsive. Anger management was his problem. Martha was a worrywart. The Samaritan woman failed in marriage, but she evangelized a whole town. Thomas had doubts. Timothy was timid. Paul was a murderer. Philip Clark says this, God uses what you have to fill a need which you could never have filled. God uses where you are to take you where you never could have gone. God uses what you can do to accomplish what you never could have done. God uses who you are to let you become who you never could have been. Don't forget the power is because you've been with Jesus. Hudson Taylor, I urge, I used to ask God if he would come and help me. Then I asked if I could come and help him. Finally, I ended by asking God to do his work through me. Hudson Taylor, an ordinary man, an ordinary person, became that great missionary to China. There will always be opposition. God uses ordinary people. Opportunities abound. Let's finish today with the fifth, the fourth and final principle. Acts 4, 14. But seeing the man who was healed standing beside them, they had nothing to say in opposition. But when they had commanded them to leave the council, they're in a trial, aren't they? The witnesses were there. They sent them away. They're about to pass judgment. They conferred with one another, saying in verse 16, What shall we do with these men? For that a notable sign has been performed through them is evident to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And we cannot deny it, but in order that it may spread no further among the people, let us warn them to speak no more to anyone in this name. 
So they called them and charged them not to speak and teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people. For all were praising God for what had happened. For the man on whom the sign, sign of healing was performed was more than 40 years old. Boldness principle number four. Boldness comes to those who are obedient. Who are obedient. The witness was present. The lame beggar was healed. There was no evidence of wrongdoing. Only good doing. But the ruling council, the opposition, was there. What do we who are ordinary people do when we are opposed? John 14, 15-7 tells us not only to be obedient, but how to be obedient. Scripture says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and He will give you another Helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. It's that simple. If we love Jesus, we will obey. Jesus gave us the Holy Spirit to help us obey. When you find that hard to do, ask the Holy Spirit. The Ephesians uh, passage said, pray, pray. One of those commands was the one I started with. Jesus said, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples. Will that be the great commission? Or will that be the great omission in our lives? Acts 4, verses 19 and 20. I'll repeat those. But Peter and John answered them, said, Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than God, you must judge. For we cannot speak of, we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. About seven, eight years ago, I'm guessing maybe John Neister might be the only one that was here on a Sunday night. Uh, here, Dr. Cohen was talking about Peter's life, preaching on some of the things in Peter's thing, and he couldn't be here on a Sunday night. And he, he asked me to uh, lead the service that night. And I had done this, um, this uh, used this passage at Taylor Ranch once before, so I had a sermon already prepped and kind of knew it. And I read those verses. I sat in the back of the auditorium there and got up when it was time to speak, and I was using, wearing first century garb. I had the robe and the headdress and stuff, and I read these verses and started to walk forward. said, For we cannot help but speak of what we have seen and heard. And I began as Peter. It, also started with, it all started with me, with my brother Andy. He came along to the shore to meet me. He told me he had found the Messiah. He was so excited. So I went along with him. When we came to that place, Jesus said to me, Simon, son of John, you will be called Cephas which is translated Peter. He then climbed in our boat and told us that we would be fishers of men. I spent the next 30 minutes going through Peter's life. See, the problem with that is, though, that's Peter's story. I have a story. You have a story. Last week, our pastor taught us about this. It's called testimonial witnessing. No one can ever argue with my experience. We must never forget that God is writing a story through us. Peter T. Forsyth was right when he said, the first duty of every soul is not to find his freedom, it's to find his master. Remember my Mormon co-worker? Let's return to him. I wasn't going to get spiritual with that guy. 
No conversation, no matter what. I don't know how many trips we took to Israel, probably eight trips, one to two weeks at a time, and all the times I went to Phoenix, but I wasn't ever going to be sharing my faith with him. But you know what? That Peter Forsyth quote is right. It wasn't uh, anything about it. It was the fact that I wasn't going to be obedient to my master. The last trip I took with Stephen was in June of 2016. It was a normal visit. He drove. He scared me while he drove, and I'm a crazy driver. And we went, and we went over that week, and we went to the old city. A guy came with us, and I kind of told him some of the things that I had learned, whether through seminary or living there, and we had a good time. And then I think it was that Monday morning. We're sitting in a room in the afternoon, and four Israelis are sitting there. And, 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 the, and my coworker. He, he started to tell him that, hey, you guys just are only half the scripture. You've got to be good. And he starts telling about the, the salvation of good works. He was stuck on the good works, but not on Jesus' substitution, his payment for our sins, his love for us. And as he spoke, one of the Israelis that had gone on the tour with us in the old city, we, had, we would walk. He knew I was a Christian. He asked me, well, what do you think about what he's saying? I don't remember my exact words, but I told him something like this. I said, what he's explained to you is not my faith. So what is my faith? Well, I'm a big, fat sinner. I'm separated from God because I do things that I don't want to do, that I know he doesn't want to do, but I'm stuck in sin. But God provided a perfect sacrifice, a perfect one, the promised Messiah. He came and lived a perfect life. He died on the cross as a payment for my sins, for anyone's sins who would come and place their life in him. He will forgive your sin and come into your life just like he has done in mine, and he's made me a new creation. I'm not yet perfect. I never will be. And I'm not sinless, but I sin less. I stole that from Dr. Cohn. I've used him many times. My faith is in Jesus. One day he's coming to return and take me to be with him forever. That may be after my last breath here on earth, or it may be when the trumpet sounds and he returns. My intent wasn't to be mean to my coworker or anything like that, but that was my story, and I needed to be obedient to tell it. I hadn't heard much from him since I left Intel for the last three and a half years until last week. I got a message from him saying he was let go from Intel. After some texting about what was going on with our families and things, I had shared with him some things in our life, some struggles and trials that many of you know about. He said, wow, lots of excitement and trials. I pray for your family. Thanks for always being a good example of a good person. You kept me grounded at times. Thanks for putting up with my driving in Israel too. We never know what impact we will have. But see, I don't think sharing my faith that day came through to him because he's still stuck on good works. Rather than just an ordinary person who's put his faith in God and is obedient But preferably, his story is still being written. And one day he will come to faith in Jesus instead of faith in good works. I tell that story not because it ended in a conversion, but I think it highlights these four principles. We will have opposition. We will have opportunities. God uses ordinary people, and we need to be obedient. Opposition often comes from others, but it comes from within ourselves. Remember that God... He's using people just like you and me if we're obedient. We just got to make sure that no one that we pass each day is missed. 
I want to share the story of Dr. Jimmy Allen, who once was the pastor of First Baptist Church, San Antonio, Texas. The story happened a long time ago, but it goes like this. It happened many years before the pastor was there. He said, we missed him. Our chance to change things came and passed, and we did not know it was there. A dark, skinny, a dark-skinned little boy sat through Sunday school classes for three years at a great Baptist church, First Baptist Church, San Antonio. But somehow, someone missed him. His name, Sirhan Sirhan. And at the age of 24, he shot and killed Senator Robert Kennedy. In a welter of words and the shudder of grief throughout our nation, the persistent, though, keeps reoccurring. Someone missed him. I miss people every day. Miss people every day. But I hope those people, as I walk through my building and think about, the commission is to not miss them. Every day they pass me by, I can see it in their eyes. Empty people filled with care, headed who knows where. On they go through private pain, living fear to fear. Laughter hides their silent cries, only Jesus hears. We are called to take his light to a world where wrong seems right. What could be too great a cost for sharing life with one who's lost? Through his love, our hearts can feel all the grief they bear. They must hear the words of life only we can share. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. At the end of broken dreams, He's the open door. People need the Lord. People need the Lord. When will we realize that we must give our lives for people need the Lord? Would you pray with me? Father God, I know I went a little long today and I